Good morning. It's a privilege to be up here. Uh, my name is Kyle LeClaire. I'm, a, I'm an elder here at GBC. If you were expecting Rick, Rick was scheduled to take have today off, and so I am like the fourth-string quarterback, maybe the fifth string. So we'll see how that turns out here later this, this, as this message continues. But if you were looking forward to the continuation to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, come back next week, and you continue to hear that. So what I want you to do now is I want you to really think back to March of 2020. I realize it was a couple years ago, but there was a lot going on in the world back then. Specifically, at least in my mind, I want you to think about March 8th, 2020. That was a Sunday. And on that day, I stood in this very spot. And for the first time, I've never presented a message here in front of the, the congregation before. I presented a message titled, Trusting God in the Midst of Turmoil. And it was a lesson on 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It was a message on Jehoshaphat, a king of Judah, and what it looked like to trust God when things were uncertain or when difficult times would come. Jehoshaphat faced a large multitude that was coming up to Jerusalem to invade. Because of his trust in the Lord, God delivered in a very difficult time. In March 2022, we all knew there was an outbreak of a virus. We didn't know what the future held. Matter of fact, the very next day on March 9th, I attended for my work the very last conference that I would attend for almost two years. Later that week, everything started to shut down. I can, test, I can attest from my own experience in those early days of the pandemic like many of you, I was scared. I found myself worried, depressed, full of anxiety, and unsure. Think about this for a moment. Generally speaking, the entire world's churches were shut down. The question that kept coming to mind was, God, what are you up to? Other questions raced through my mind, but the major prevailing thought was, I just want things to go back to normal. Maybe that was your thought as well. I found, I found that I based on how I felt and my view of the world was based solely on what I was reading in the news. I became a news junkie, filtering through all the, the media, trying to soak up anything that I can find that would tell me things would get back to normal, that things are going to be okay. I was being self-reliant, and I was dealing with this particular turmoil. This is how I was coping, and it was not good. So here was a trusting God moment in my own heart before the Lord was failing. I was not practicing the very thing I preached upon in the weeks earlier, and that was trusting God in the midst of the turmoil. I did not consider the Lord... In that time. And it was not good. So in the course of my own study and quiet time and conversations with my wife, in the early days of the pandemic, we came across Isaiah 22. And that chapter really became the benchmark for my soul. So as we go through this, this passage was a great help to me. And I've titled this passage or this message, 
the false hope of self-reliance. And the main idea that I really want to get to the core to is this. At the core, self-reliance is arrogance that leads to destruction and emphasizes our need for a Savior. I want you for a moment to consider 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Many of us have it memorized. What does it say? It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Do we believe this? Can God's word be used to help us? We better hope so. This is for nothing otherwise. This portion of Isaiah was used to teach me. It was used to reproof me. It was used to correct me. And ultimately, it was used to train me. So this study, in part, is directly related to my own quiet time and chewing on this passage for the past couple of years. A testimony of sort. My desire is that you see God for who he is in this text and that we learn from Judah so that we can be taught, that we can be reproofed, we can be corrected, and we can be trained in righteousness. Certainly, my walk with Christ is going to be different than yours. But the application of this particular scripture needs to be evaluated against who God is and who we are of believers in Christ. That being said, let's turn to Isaiah 22. We've already read this this morning, but it's customary for me. It's important to understand some general context about this particular area of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was known as a preaching prophet primarily to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's also also known as a writing prophet. But reading um, this particular area of this passage, it's good to review some high-level history. Isaiah's ministry began when the nation of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And you can see this map up here. I've used this map in past messages. As you all know, I'm a map guy, so I like maps. In the line of kings under the southern kingdom of Judah, Isaiah's ministry and role began under the king of Uzziah, through King Jotham, King Ahaz, and ultimately under King Hezekiah. So what was happening around Judah, in particular Jerusalem, at this particular time? It's important to understand that. So I've tried to kind of summarize this in a, a very big picture slide here, hence the big picture history on top of the slide. But I surmise that Isaiah 22 is in the context of Assyria, when Assyria was the great you know, world power at the time. And this was after assimilating the northern kingdom of Israel um, into Assyria. In other words, the northern kingdom was taken out. And Assyria was migrating to the south. And they attempted a siege against Jerusalem. You see this in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 20 and following there. This was when that siege was set up. And Hezekiah, who was the king at the time, was encouraged by Isaiah to take heart and trust in the Lord. And so Hezekiah prayed, and God heard his prayer. And because of that prayer and as God acting, the result of this particular dependence on the Lord was that an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 that was sieging against Jerusalem. And that was the end of that siege. That was the end of it. So Jerusalem stood. So here you'll see Isaiah making proclamations here 
if you can see the circle, this is where he's making the proclamation. But the proclamation is in regard to what is to come, which is on the right side of the page. This is the time, as we know in history, that the Babylonian Empire would rise up and they would take the Assyrian Empire out. And you can also see this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. I'll read it to you. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wander, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth. So at this time, the Assyrians were the, was the, the great world power. But this little rebel group of Babylonians was rising. And in Habakkuk, this rebel group would rise and become the next world power and would eventually overcome the Assyrians. And they would eventually would come down to Jerusalem and do a second attempt at a siege. You will clearly see in the book of Isaiah that God's response to sin is judgment if people continue to rebel against him. But he also responds with redemption if they would abandon self-reliance and depend on him. So interesting enough, leading up to chapter 22 and around chapter 22 and even after 22, you'll see judgments proclaimed against the nations, including Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, Ethiopia, and including Babylon, other nations and towns around Jerusalem, and ultimately the judgment of the earth. It's an interesting thing, but in the midst of this proclaimed forthcoming judgments on the nations, you see this judgment on Judah and Jerusalem called the Valley of Vision. It's interesting to me and point my own observations that this is contained within the judgments of the nations. This is God's covenant people. But he's putting this judgment in the midst of the nations. What does that tell you a little bit? At least tells me maybe Jerusalem was looking a little bit like the world. As we look at verse 1 of chapter 22 of Isaiah, you can see Isaiah begin with a header statement, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Why did Isaiah use this imagery? It's sort of a mysterious image. In and around Jerusalem, there are valleys in and around Jerusalem, as you all may be aware as you look at maps and geography and things of that nature. But through the Bible, it's always referred to Jerusalem as going up to the city, up to the Temple Mount. But the imagery here is more of a commentary of how Isaiah is seeing Jerusalem. He's seeing it as a depressed place. It's an ominous image of what Isaiah knows is coming in the future. It's expressed to show the weight of the burden that Isaiah has for Jerusalem. It's also showing the clear lack of vision that the inhabitants have of what's coming. They lack this vision of these judgments that will be coming in the future as you look at the PowerPoint. This imagery is consistent with other parts of the Bible for, for, for as well. For example, Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, i.e. the valley of deep darkness. So this is a depressive view. This is something that Isaiah sees as coming down the pike. This is something that's very depressive and very ominous and very not good. So after this header statement, Isaiah proceeds to talk of this burden that God has given him. And he states this. He goes, what is the matter with you now that you all have gone up to the housetops? And what were, you do and what were they doing on the housetops? That's the question. 
Look at verse 2. You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Doesn't seem like Jerusalem's much under judgment at that particular point in time. Isaiah is seeing that Jerusalem is celebrating by going to the housetop. There must have been a certain level of security at that particular time. Otherwise, there would be no reason to come to the house, the top rooftops. Again, this might have been right after this siege on the left-hand side of this, uh, the PowerPoint there. When you look at this Assyrian Empire's attempt on the siege in Jerusalem, how God delivered them, this might have been in that time frame. So they would have had a good reason to celebrate. But it's not so for Isaiah. He had a burden delivered by God that showed what was to come. The arrogance of Judah would prevail, just like the arrogance of the Assyrians in the latest siege attempt. It is important to note in prophetic language that this, this uh, wording from now and then also projecting to the future, it's seamless in the passages many times. The gears are changing, are t- turning very slowly, and you're going from current to future as you go through the text, and here is no different. So you'll see in the end of verse 2, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. And continuing on in verse 3, you see, all the rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Again, these are things that are coming about. These are things that he's looking to see, can see that's coming. And you see this as we know in history, as we look at 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 4 through 7. This is the future when Babylon would siege the city. There'd be a great starvation, so bad that the leaders would attempt to escape, which result in them being captured. At that time of that siege, how bad does it get? That's the question, right? So I'm going to turn to, I'll, I'll turn there myself, but I'll turn to Lamentations chapter 4 and read 4 through 10 for you all to give you an idea of how bad this second siege was. So Lamentations chapter 4, starting in verse 4. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were left turned toward her. As you go on down, Better are those, I'm reading verse 9, better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for the lack of fruits of the field. The hands of a compassionate woman boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Lamentation reveals that it was really bad in that time of the, the siege of that city. Things were not good. So it gives a little bit more context of what Isaiah says next. And looking at verse 4, he says, Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. You see that same phrase again. You see, Isaiah sees the depths of Judah's sin here. He saw what it is to come, and eventually it drove him to tears. 
You see the emotion here as well, the burden that Isaiah was carrying, was seeing this. They celebrated, but Isaiah saw a much deeper and viral problem within the hearts of Judah. In verse 5, it, it, Isaiah continues to reveal this burden that God had shown him. So it says, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. In this valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and crying to the mountain. The main thing is to point out here is that the Lord, Yahweh, has a day. He is the one who instigated this. In this depressive oracle, in the valley, there's a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountains, and it just gets worse. In verse 6, it says, Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It's a little unsure why Isaiah, through this vision, mentioned these specific enemies. One thing it surmised is, and just to give you a little more context, Elam is actually east of the Persian Gulf, further away. It's a very far uh, enemy. They were allied with the Assyrians. And Kerr was very much closer, not sure exactly where that location was, but they also participated in, with the Assyrians as well. The best that I can surmise is Isaiah is showing in the future, it's going to be like you just re recently saw. And you're going to have enemies far and near at your gates. You read that in verse 7 and 8. And your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate, and he removed, he removed the defense of Judah. The thing to point out here is God himself removed the defense screen around this city. The question is why? And the latter part of that verse 8 tells us. It says, In that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. And so Judah depended on weapons of war. Apparently this house of the forest was basically an armory. And they surmised that it was built in Solomon's day and was built of cedars. But the point here is they depended on that. And they're going to depend on much more as we see in verse 9 and following. In verses 9 through 11. And you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. And you collected the waters from the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down the houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. And there's this but. But you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration who planned it long ago. That's a great accusation. Hard accusation towards Judah. There's some things to digest here. You know, so a siege would be set up, looking back at verse 7. These enemies would conquer the countryside and set up a siege outside the gates of Jerusalem. And the thing is, this is God who brought this about. And the reason is that the people relied on man's devices for their security. They trusted in these weapons of war. They saw the breaches in the wall and they fixed them. They counted the houses and tore them down. In many cases, in, around Jerusalem... Uh, there's these two walls, and many times over time, shanties would start popping up, and then basically they become permanent fixtures. And for the immediate need, these houses were removed, and the annular space was flooded, and that served two purposes, basically. One was a moat of sorts, okay, very adequate defense, 
But the other one was provided water reserves. Anytime you're up against a siege, water becomes the most important thing that you need to reserve. They, be, they depended on these perceived adequate moves and trusted in these defenses rather than the Lord. Again, this is Isaiah looking ahead of what's to come. For myself, personally, in my own walk and where I was struggling at that particular time in that March, April 2020 time frame, this is where these verses hit me straight in the face. Just boom, came alive for me. What was I relying on? Myself? Man's devices? By me searching the internet, looking for good news or something to give me just a little bit of hope, I was not taking into consideration him who planned it long ago. I was relying on myself, trying to navigate this difficulty on my own. And that may be where some of you are today. I can attest there's those in this room who's had major difficulty, and they've excelled at trusting God, even when things are very, very difficult. And I praise God for you, and I hear the stories, and it's an encouragement to me. And you know what's interesting is I was struggling through this. The thing that kept coming back to is it was not satisfying. All this worry, this anxiety, searching, looking into the Internet, and all these things were trying to find a little bit of hope. It was a snowball effect. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And anxiety kept getting worse and worse. And the result is there was no joy. Ask my wife. There was no joy at that time for me. I was not looking like a believer in Christ. And this is even in light after two or three weeks after I preached that sermon on trusting God in the, in the, in the midst of turmoil. So here's the accusation against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They didn't consider him who planned it long ago. This was Isaiah. This is what Isaiah saw coming. Definitely a valley. But you know what? In these times of judgment, in these hardships, when maybe we don't do things right, at least scripturally, when we look, there's always a call to repentance, as we'll see in the next verse. And you look at verse 12. The Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. In scripture, there's always a call to repentance when there's a judgment. A call to reconcile before the Lord, and here is absolutely no different. A good example of this, and I taught this in the high school group just uh, this past Sunday, is Nehemiah chapter 9. This is after the siege of Babylon is successful, and they are exiled. This Judah is exiled and mixed with Babylon. And then after a time, God brings the remnant back to Jerusalem under Nehemiah to build the walls. And what you find is Ezra begins to, work, to read the word of God before the congregation. And this congregation was saddened. And they went before the Lord and repented. And you see this very similar language. Shaved heads and sackcloth. So there was a call to repentance. Yet Isaiah looked ahead and saw that it would not be heeded. In verse 13, you see the complete opposite of repentance. Instead, there was gaiety and gladness. They would not repent. They could not save themselves. That's the result of their own self-reliance. They saw that. but nothing else would. It still did not bring them back to depend upon the Lord. They would trust in man's devices and not what the word of the Lord was telling them or had told them. 
As you go further down in verse 13, there was a killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. And then they say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. It just shows you the hope that they lacked. They knew the outcome of their own self-reliance. And there was a killing of cattle and a slaughtering of sheep. These are the, variable, the very valuable instruments that God has given them for sustenance. In other words, sheep brings you wool. So that's a sustaining element that would sustain them. Cows bring you milk. And so there was no hope. So they killed the cows and they slaughtered the sheep. And their attitude was, let us drink for tomorrow we may die. There's a hopelessness there. They did not look for God for deliverance. This self-reliance left them with no hope. But they still did not repent before the Lord. They hardened their heart and slaughtered the very animals that were valuable. Repeating that again. You see similar, you see this, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter, first, uh, chapter, 15, chapter 15, verse 32. As Paul is addressing those that, uh, regarding the resurrection. And he said, if there is no resurrection, what's the point? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. And that's a valuable point to really think about. What is the point of all this? Believers in Christ, if we truly believe in Christ, that is our hope. It's an interesting thing if you are apart from Christ and you don't know who God is. It's an interesting thing to think about that this world that's always in turmoil, that's always hard, that's full of health problems, that's full of wars and famines and these things that come about, this is the best it's going to get. That's the best it's going to get apart from Christ. Isaiah saw more. And as a result of this self-reliance, look at verse 14. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me, to his ears. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. The result of their self-reliance was no hope and ultimately separation from God. This was this ultimate judgment. If they did not repent and then they died, there's no atonement. If you're apart from Christ, this is the best it's going to get. But if you don't repent, we'll talk more about this here shortly. If you don't repent before the Lord and stop depending on your self-reliance and you die, that's it. There's no atonement. So in summary, Isaiah saw a time when Judah would be under siege again. And Judah would depend on the weapons of war. They, did, they would do what any city under siege would do. They would look and they would do all the right stuff. We would be on the outside and say, yeah, Jerusalem, you did the right thing. You secured your water. You, you fixed the breaches in your wall. You did all these things right militarily and from a defense. You depend on these weapons of war. But God had that one thing against them. They did not consider him. They did not consider all the history of Israel leading up to that point. This is the same God. This is the Lord God who delivered them, Israel, out of Egypt. This is the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea and brought Israel across on dry land, ultimately delivering them from the hands of Egypt. He gave them the law. He gave them direction. He gave them purpose and provided for them and gave them food and water in the midst of the wilderness. Yet they still complained. 
He gave them a land for them, which he had promised to Abraham, in which there were to be houses there that they did not build, and there would be vineyards there that they did not plant. What a blessing of God for them. He delivered them in battles, but there was no way out except for to trust in God. This is all in their history. And even more recently, as you look at the Assyrians, as they came up with their siege that failed, it was the prayer of one king, Hezekiah, that God acted. And he took out the Assyrians and canceled that siege. Isaiah proclaimed that they would be, they were self-reliant, they would not consider the Lord. Maybe that's where our heart is today in a lot of many areas of our lives. We know the truth. As a believer in Christ, we know where we stand before him, but yet we are still self-reliant. As we go through the application and look at what this passage means, how does this passage work? There's some applications that might be helpful. These are some that were helpful to me. But they're in your own studies. You may have other applications. Number one, self-reliance reveals the need for repentance. In the early days of COVID, with all the uncertainty, as I mentioned, in my own anxiety, I found myself wringing my hands, looking just like the world. As a believer in Christ, was I any different? Should I be? The answer is yes. How does that fit with what I know about God's word? Was I trusting in man's devices? I certainly was. Hear me, what I'm asking is, all I'm wanting to do is have you look at your own heart before the Lord. How was it? When I came across this passage, I was completely crushed. I'll be just completely upfront, completely crushed. Here I had just finished this sermon on trusting God in turmoil, and here I was wringing my hands and not trusting God. I was utterly failing. Believers in Christ do not look like the world. We are called to be different. Not perfect, but different. We are called to be worshipers and glorify him alone. Upon reading this passage, I knew myself. I was wrong, and I repented. I changed course. God's word rung true as we read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God and your peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And with that passage and the repentance, wow. I was forgiven, and I changed course, and my joy came back, and it was an awesome time from there on out just to see what God, how he's working. If you find yourself in whatever difficult situation you are in, please evaluate your heart. Please evaluate it against God's word, against this text, other texts of the scripture. And if you find that you've been trusting in the wrong things, repent. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Don't let the sin of your heart be that barrier that allows you to have a life of joy and a life of being used by Christ in ministry. 
Number two, self-reliance results in no hope. As revealed to Isaiah, Judah would base their dependence upon these defense strategies and the weapons of war. The result was still going to be no hope. You see that as it was proclaimed in verse 13 of this, of this chapter. The idea is if I do certain things, then I can change the outcome. At least we think we can. And guess what that result was? For me, it was more anxiety, more worry, more depression, and no hope. Men and women, that does not lead to a deeper relationship with God, nor a peaceful countenance before the Lord. We are to be at peace because we abide in Christ, not the world. Philippians 4 again, we're to be anxious for nothing. This last application point is for those who have not put their trust in Christ, who have not trusted God, that are still in self-reliance, and that is the self-reliance results in death. You can see this in verse 14 again. The results of Judah's self-reliance by God's proclamation through Israel. This is the ultimate act of self-reliance and arrogance. This ultimate act is saying, I'm doing it alone. I've got this all figured out. I'm going to walk this world based on what I know and what I want to do and on my own, and I'm dependent on myself. And some of you who may think there is a in that sinful approach, may look at it and say, well, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't, but if there is a God, maybe I've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things. That is self-reliance and ultimately arrogance. And that's the very thing that God was addressing to Judah in this passage, their self-reliance and arrogance. They did not consider him who planned it long ago. As you read through the scripture, God hates arrogance. You cannot read through the Bible and not see God's disdain for the arrogant. He called out the nations for their arrogance. He called out Israel for being arrogant. It's the same problem. We're arrogant. Your self-reliance, repeating it again, is the ultimate act of arrogance that leads to death. A destination to hell, separated from a holy God for eternity. And God is full of mercy. He's full of grace and forgiveness. Are you really those who don't trust in Christ alone? Are you really going to stand there on your own arrogance and try to do this on your, on your own? The Bible says very clearly in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I always love this illustration. It's not my illustration, but it's one I've heard where we stand on, you and I may stand on one side, of the, uh, one side of the James River. We throw rocks across the James River trying to get to the other side. More than likely, you will throw farther than me. But the point is, we both miss the mark. We both miss the mark, and we both fall short of the glory of God and His holiness. The Bible also says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible is very clear. This free gift is because of Christ, 
going to the cross and being the propitiation. That's the satisfaction of God's wrath on your account. He satisfied this holy God's wrath, this judgment that was against you. You were enemies of God. And if you're apart from Christ, you are an enemy of God. So the result of our own sin, the result of our own arrogance against this holy God is death. It's universal and applies to everyone apart from Christ. Then you go and read Ephesians chapter 2, my favorite chapter in the New Testament. And verses 8 and 9 says this, For you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It strips the arrogance all out of it. This is a free gift that only God can provide. And all it comes down to is you're transferring your life from being a life of self-reliance to transferring it to be relying on Christ. That's it. And all you're doing is accepting that free gift of salvation, and that is all that's taking place, is you're going to rely on Christ rather than yourself. Don't die apart from God in arrogance. To the believer in Christ, I repeat this once again. As we read the, the scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Are we being trained in righteousness? Are we being proof, reproofed? Are we being corrected? Are we doing these things so that we can serve Christ all the more, so we don't look like the world, so when things get tough and hard and arduous, that we can glorify God even when it's tough? That's my prayer, that we continue to seek God out through his word, and we continue to obey and to grow in Christ and be a light that desperately needs to hear about Jesus, desperately needs to hear about his holiness, and desperately needs to put their faith in him alone to do what they cannot do for themselves. Only Christ can do it. With that, let's pray together.